Hi, everybody. It's Michael Angelo Caruso. Welcome to my podcast. And I have a special guest today. Her name is Emily Holstein. Hi, Emily. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Thank you for being with me. If you don't mind, Emily, we're going to do a little bit of uh, front business. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a fan of this podcast, this Talk to Me podcast, you know that we have interesting people on to talk about, oh, everything from what they do for a living to fascinating hobbies. Uh, sometimes they're just on to talk about an interesting life experience that they've had. And Emily Holstein has had a series of interesting life experiences because of her line of work. And I initially met Emily when she came to do a uh, CPR class at a uh, group I belong to. And uh, I was just knocked out, not only at how um, smooth she was with the instruction, but I was just enchanted at what she does for a living. And now your title might have changed a bit then since, Emily, uh, I know you as a paramedic, but technically you're a CQI and education coordinator for Alliance Mobile Health in Troy, Michigan, correct? Yes, that is correct. I am still a paramedic. That'll never stop. Okay, good for you. Uh, tell us, everybody, about CQI and education coordination. What does that mean? Well, essentially, I am responsible for ensuring that clinically our company is running smoothly. I keep an eye on all of our road staff, make sure they're following protocols, following procedures, operating appropriately, and I provide training both in-house to my staff and um, out in the community and to our contracting municipalities. So there's a lot of teaching, a lot of education, a lot of community outreach. You know, I'm a consultant by trade, and we also use that term in-house consultant, and the other opposite would be outhouse consultant. But I, but I noticed you avoided it when you said in-house, and then, of course, we have people who are out there. <laughs> I'm side. That's fine. That's good. You, I like the way you do it better than the way I do it. Um, so, fantastic. And um, I know you're really good at this because of the way you delivered uh, CPR uh, class to us. But the reason I wanted you on the podcast was to talk about the life of a paramedic. There have been TV shows created about this lifestyle. And um, although some of those shows may be realistic, there's nothing like talking to somebody who actually does it. How much like uh, television is it, Emily, being out on the road and, 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 and doing calls? It depends on what show you're watching. Uh, sometimes <laughs> there are things that are very accurate. There are some things that are very dramatic and exciting. There are beautiful, amazing moments that we get to be a part of. And there's absolute horrible things that we see. Um, and one thing they always do portray very accurately is the relationships that you build working in this field with the fellow responders and the people that you experience those situations with. They're very, very great about that. I was always intrigued by the fact that even though you may be on the road with one other person in your, you know, call it a truck or a vehicle, what do you call it? Rig, box, ambulance, all sorts of things. <laughs> when you're on the road in the box with your other partner, um, when you get when you roll up, you're you're actually working on a, a team, but it's an unusual kind of team. It's not they're not people that you see back at the office. It's the fire department, it's the police department, uh, maybe other types of people, citizenry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whoever is there, we all do what we can, and we focus on our strengths. There is typically one person that takes the lead, and that's usually the highest licensed person, and everyone will sort of defer to them. How do we, um, excuse me. How do we know who that is? Uh, is, this, is it a rank thing? You see their uniform? 
Yes. Um, every, I mean, if you have two paramedics on scene, they typically decide on the way to the call who's going to take charge. Okay. And they'll rotate back and forth. Um, but, for example, a paramedic is higher license than an EMT, and that's just clearly on their shirt, paramedic or EMT. Yep. You'll see people that have additional um, what we call rockers above their patches on their shoulders, uh, different insignias, collar brass, things like that that will identify who is who. But sometimes the more stuff on your shirt, the more you've got. <laughs> sometimes, at least on television, people come up in plain clothes. That is that provided a challenge sometimes? It does sometimes because anybody can identify themselves as anyone. I could walk onto a scene and say I'm a doctor. They don't I know anybody. I hadn't even thought of that. I hadn't even thought of that. So how does it work with rank? Like, um, does police always outrank fire? It depends on the type of scene and what's going on. If it is a police situation, then we defer to the police uh, while they resolve their portion of it. Uh -huh. um, if it's a medical situation, then the EMTs and paramedics will be the ones that are deferred to as to how it will be handled. If there's an extrication or a rescue, then fire gets involved. And does a doctor outrank a police captain? If it is a medical scene, technically, yes. Um, on the road, there are some different rules and a lot of, in, a lot of intricate uh, protocols involving those sorts of things, though, as to whether or not they participate and how they would participate. Yeah, I know we try to protocol this stuff out, and whenever you see, like, investigations, there's always people digging into what should have been done. It seems to me it's a very challenging situation. You, not only is it impossible to always make the right decision, but you're, you're making hundreds of calls, if you will, decisions based on uh, false information, lack of information. It's got to be a gargantuan task. Critical thinking is the most important skill okay. uh, for any emergency responder. You have to be able to take in information from all avenues and make those decisions quickly. Okay. Well, we're going to get a CPR lesson from you in a minute. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about your, uh, your background. Uh, where'd you go to school? Well, I did my uh, paramedic training through Macomb Community College. Here I've also taken That's classes. it here. For those of you listening in other parts of the world, this is here in Southeast Michigan. My audience is huge, Emily. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I will have to uh, clarify a little bit more. <laughs> I'm in three or four countries now. Oh, my gosh. Well, hi, everybody. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, okay, so very good. So uh, Macomb Community College. Mm -hmm. I've also taken, I mean, I've, to be completely honest with you, I've taken classes at so many different institutions and universities while I try to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Not quite sure yet. I've been a paramedic, since, I've been a licensed paramedic since 2010. I've been with Alliance Mobile Health since 2011. I worked in the field. I uh, worked on a first response unit by myself, which was an interesting experience, mm -hmm. um, a non-transporting unit. I worked as a field training officer where I was training new people coming out of school. And then I was an operations supervisor for a year where I was essentially the commanding officer of a shift, um, which was definitely interesting. <laughs> that, was a, that was a huge stepping stone for me. And it was a lot of uh, growth and development during that time, which was really fantastic and kind of catapulted me into leadership and pushed me to want to pursue what I'm doing now. Well, it seems to me you have to be good at a lot of things to do this job, to be a paramedic. You're, um, you've got to be medically uh, trained. There's a little bit of law and order in what you do, isn't there? Yes, a little bit. There is uh, some sociology work being done. You're, you're, you're going into a lot of homes and you're seeing things that uh, social workers would have to deal with, right? Standards of living, things like that. 
Yes, and you have to be prepared for all of those and able to address your concerns and make sure things are reported appropriately and it can be challenging to say the least. <laughs> and when I heard you talk, one of the first things you said was you introduced a psychology term called the bystander effect. Maybe you called it something different. It's crowd effect or bystander effect. And I was taken by this because you know, uh, I teach presentation skills and I just love psychology and how it impacts uh, communication and self-esteem, self-concept, uh, effectiveness, communication effectiveness, and all this stuff. Uh, let's talk about the psychology angle for a minute. Talk about the bystander effect and how it impacts people, not just in, an, uh, in a pedestrian scenario, but in a trauma scenario. Give us an example. So the, uh, the bystander effect, uh, they used to call it bystander apathy, which they've now changed that, <laughs> thankfully. Um, essentially, it's, it's a global psychological phenomenon that happens across cultures and across all different boundaries where they've found that people are less likely to offer help in an emergency situation if they're in a larger group. It comes down to the, the biggest basis of it is what they call diffusion of responsibility. Everybody thinks that someone else will take care of it and that therefore they don't need to. So if they are not directly related to the individual or um, affected by the situation, they often won't intervene. You know, um, not to uh, water down the definition, but it seems to me the bystander effect is alive and well in other uh, industries as well. It's not just trauma and, you know, uh, people laying on the cement, right? No, it absolutely is. It's in really any situation when people think that somebody else will address something, they will not do it themselves, whether that is seeing somebody being mistreated in a park yeah. or uh, somebody mocking uh, a disabled person in the grocery store. Everybody yeah. looks around and expects that somebody else will intervene and they don't want to be the person to do it themselves because they're unsure of the situation and concerned about consequences. So this is so important in your line of work that you've actually, somebody came up with a slogan to address the bystander effect and encourage uh, not one person, but everyone to do something in particular. Tell us about the phrase, the, where it comes from, and is it, is it working? Well, so we're, we're yeah, sorry, we're greatly pushing the concept of if you see something, do something. Um, and that's been a push that I really started based on uh, the hands-only CPR movement and the Stop the Blade movement. I've taken both of those and kind of combined them when I'm doing this community education. And I based that off of one of my favorite quotes that I had ever heard. And I apologize, I cannot remember who it is attributed to at this moment, but it is, I used to wonder why someone didn't do something about that. And then I realized I was someone. And if we, if we can we find me, uh... take that attitude. If we can find the originator, we'll add it to the show notes in the comments. But I, I love the quote, and it, and it teaches us that we're, we're all really responsible, even if we don't have training, even if we're visiting this, the scene, we don't live there. Um, you know, a lot of times, I travel a lot, and a lot of times I find myself thinking, well, somebody that knows the area is going to take care of this, or somebody that eats at this restaurant all the time is going to figure this out. But no, man, it's me. I'm thinking about it's people choking or somebody trips on a step, you know, so. Um, and something else happens that you talked about time and how time warps when there's an emergency. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, people tend to experience what they call time dilation when they're under stress. So any form of stress, 
five minutes could feel like an hour when you're in any stressful situation, whether it's that you're waiting for help to arrive or you're waiting for your date to show up on that blind date that your friend set you up with. <laughs> it's going to feel like an hour because your body's under stress. In my case, a lot of times the date, the date never showed up. <laughs> That's even longer. That's when you just complain to the bartender and they'll give you that martini for free. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this, uh, this uh, time dilation impacts not only the person who's injured, but the person who's called in for help at the paramedic. You hear this all the time on the recordings that, uh, or they interview somebody later and they say it seemed like the ambulance took forever, but rest assured the ambulance got there in pretty good, pretty good time most of the time, yeah? Oh yes, our average response times for, emer for an emergency are under five minutes, uh, yeah. to speak for my company as you know, one example. The national standard that that all companies and fire departments are expected to meet is eight minutes or less for an emergency to arrive on scene um, yeah. for the transporting vehicle to arrive. And that is not about over, it's not over 90, 90% of the time. Yeah, and well it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it when you're there though. And I can tell you, even as the first responder, when I was by myself waiting for that transporting crew to arrive, it felt like longer than three minutes. <laughs> That's for sure. We've seen uh, video, uh, television, and that sort of thing, movies about fire. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the fire pole and people throwing on their coats and stuff. What do you guys have to do to get out the door? Just grab a bag or just get in the, get in the box? Well, um, my particular company, everybody is already ready to go. We do what's called status system management. So you are in the ambulance, posted strategically throughout the area to provide the most coverage based on the number of vehicles that are available. So it's a matter of put it in drive and start moving. Okay, cool. So uh, let's get a CPR lesson. And by the way, everybody, we're on our way to uh, hearing some very compelling stories from the road. It's, it, uh, it, it, this is, uh, is going to really grab your heartstrings in, in ways that other interviews do not. Um, you mentioned something about a hands-only CPR. And we've moved away from mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, which just blew my mind because we spent so much time and energy educating people on this thing. I remember I took the class myself three or four times, and now it's not even a thing anymore, right? That is correct. For the um, layperson or you know, any public individual, they are now doing what they call hands-only CPR, and that is focusing on the compressions and doing continuous, high-quality compressions. When there I is first, a lot of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. When I first heard this, I thought, well, this is, this is because of AIDS and body fluids and stuff. But then I found out that really wasn't the reason. There, there was a lot of data that showed that the hands-only compression was actually more effective, yeah? It is, yes, because we are not interrupting compressions at that point. There is a lot of continuous compression required to get pressure high enough to actually perfuse the brain. And when we stop those compressions, we lose that pressure. Also, Which is weird because this, we were teaching this a long time before mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Yep, and uh, it's, they found that people also weren't intervening due to mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. Uh, so if it's not really getting us anything extra, yeah. Why discourage people from performing CPR yeah. and intervening? Let's make it easier. Let's keep it simple and okay. make things happen. So let's keep it simple. This is a podcast. A lot of people mm -hmm. are listening and they're not uh, benefiting from our good looks today. So we're <laughs> going to talk about this hands-only compression in a way that even if you're listening, you'll, uh, you'll understand and appreciate the tenets of it, if not the actual visual. 
um, you taught me that day that, that I saw your class, um, that if you're not breaking some ribs when you do this, you're probably not doing it right. And that is just like echoed in my head because I always think, well, I don't want to, I'm trying to help the person. I never want to hurt them. But it turns out to do compression right, you actually have to press hard enough to, ribs are fairly fragile. That's the thing that most people don't know. That is correct. Um, when you are doing CPR, you're not actually breaking the ribs, you're cracking cartilage. Okay, good. Thank you for fixing life, it. It can, it can heal. Okay. And if they aren't alive, they can't heal. So I would take some cracked cartilage or broken ribs over potentially not making it to see another day. Great. Um, so let's walk through it chronologically. Um, we won't spend a lot of time, but just to kind of walk us through this. So if somebody's laying prone on the, on the ground or the pavement or the floor of their living room, uh, what's the first thing you do if, uh, if you're on your way to hands only? The first thing that we're going to do is see if they're responsive. Uh, so just, you know, give them a tap on the shoulder, give them a little shake or, you know, rub their shoulder and say, hey, are you okay? If they don't respond to being touched and to your voice, they're unresponsive and we need to get 911 coming right now. Okay, very good. What's so, next? That is our first no. No, they are not responsive. Next, we're gonna check and see if they're breathing. There's a few ways that you can do this. You can put your ear over their mouth, which will allow you to look at their chest and see if there's any movement, as well as feel and hear um, their breath on your ear. Or if you're not comfortable getting that close for any reason, you can place a hand on the center of their chest and you should be able to feel it moving up and down slightly with their breath. Okay. If we don't feel that or you know, we know they aren't breathing, that's our second no. So now we're on to step three, which is go. We're gonna put- No, no, hands. go. Yep, no, no, go. Okay. Step three, we're going to put our hands in the center of their chest, right over their sternum, which is your breastbone. Everyone's familiar with where it is on themselves. Put your hands right in the center, one on top of the other. Push straight down and let up. Straight down and let up. Hard and fast at so, 100 beats a minute. All right, slow down. We're going to do the uh, palm, is it? Is it the palm that goes yeah, on the, the sternum? On the sternum. And then the other and hand on top of that hand? On top of that. Oh, you're interlacing the fingers? You don't have to interlace. You can, or you can okay. lay them on okay. top of one another. Okay. And then you're going to just push directly down and let up. And you said 120 beats a minute? 100. 100, okay. So we're going to go to the beat of staying alive. Or for our younger audience, call me maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so you're referencing the, the meter of popular songs. Absolutely. You know, I just can't imagine myself singing when I'm giving hands-only CPR, but it is a nice reference point for how fast to do it. And the other thing that I think I learned from you is you're going to get tired if you're doing this right. This is, an on, this is a lot longer than three minutes in a lot of cases. Three yes, minutes is the, by the way, three minutes is how long most pop songs are. Yes, so if you really are right. singing along, you're going to do two verses, a bridge, three choruses, and you're still pumping. And why do we have to do it so long, Emily? We're gonna continue going until help arrives because we want to keep their blood moving and keep oxygenating their body. If we keep oxygenating their body, there is a chance of survival. If we stop and there's no oxygen getting to their heart and to their brain from their blood, yeah. then we're ruining their chances. Time yeah. is tissue. 
time is tissue. So uh, I'm making some notes. So, <laughs> so not only are we doing this longer than the average pop song because we, we don't want to stop until somebody actually gets there, we could put a time frame to it if your average paramedic uh, response time is five minutes. Plan on being there on your knees for five minutes pumping. Sometimes you, somebody trade off with somebody, yeah, because you want Absolutely. To, the quality of how you do it is important. If there's somebody else there that knows CPR or that you feel you can coach through doing compressions, have them switch off with you after two minutes. Okay. That's the average time that people can sustain that without needing a break. So we don't want to lose our quality due to fatigue. Okay. So we're, uh, this is called the hands-only CPR technique? Yep. Hands-only CPR. And we, call, we also use no-no-go as a way to just describe it. To describe the three steps. Uh, no, not responsive, not breathing, then go with the, uh, with the compression technique. Very good. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Let's talk, so let's talk story, as they say in Hawaii. How many runs have you been on now in your career? Thousands. How many have you been on in a day? Is that a fair question? Uh, when I worked the road full time in a typical night shift, I could easily do seven or eight calls. I'm guessing shift. I'm, that's one an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing night shift is more interesting than day shift. It can be. It's different types of calls. You get different types of things happening at night than during the day. Okay. Uh, somebody said one time that, that uh, more accidents are likely to happen at night for various reasons. Fatigue, alcohol, party, favors. Uh, and there may be some days of the week would be busier, some nights of the week would be busier than others. Is that basically true? You get a run on weekends, for example? Absolutely. Absolutely. Weekend nights, you move a lot more than the weekdays. People sleep between school and work. When they don't have school and work, they're out and about. Okay. And that's when emergencies happen. So let's tell some stories. Let's start with, uh, let's start with um, a good Samaritan call, something that surprised you and, and really uh, maybe bolstered your, um, how you feel about your fellow, fellow people. Uh, we actually, I did not get to personally experience this. I got to uh, meet the people involved afterward, uh, well, speak with them at least, and I'm uh, hoping to get to set up some time for the meet with our paramedics soon. There was a church that a gentleman went into cardiac arrest suddenly while he was at an event that this church was hosting. And their staff is trained in CPR, and they have an AED on site. And they immediately sent someone to get that AED, started compressions. When our first paramedic walked up to that patient, he was breathing. Wow. And by the time the second paramedic got up to that guy, they said, hey, how are you feeling? And he said, not good. So they saved his life before we even got there. Wow. Not good meaning better than not talking at all. <laughs> Oh, yeah. He said, he said, not good. <laughs> Very good. Than, uh, not being able to answer at all, that's for sure. <laughs> How about a story, uh, the, the mirrored, uh, the mirror uh, version of that story, something that, uh, and I know you've been on a few of these, disheartening call, uh, one that maybe caused you to lose your faith in humankind a little bit. Um, maybe I'm not phrasing it right. Something that you see people at their worst or you see something that just breaks your heart? 
Um, well, unfortunately, we see a lot of that. Any anything involving children is terrible. Um, anything involving abuse or neglect or exploitation of anyone that's vulnerable, you know, elderly. Um, I think one of the hardest ones that I dealt with about a year ago was um, a car accident that involved a party bus style limousine. Yeah. And they these people did everything right. They were celebrating. They you know, paid for the bus to have their sober driver and to just go out and enjoy themselves. And I am sure that they never thought before they left their house that they would be, you know, wandering around on the expressway in the middle of the night for hours waiting for another limo to come get the people that were uninjured and, you know, us to get all of the people with mild injuries out of there, you know, ambulance after ambulance, like a parade. Wow. To take people to the hospital. Another one. We're going to put three in this ambulance. We're going to put four in this one, getting people out of there um, to get them the care that they needed. So that's a fascinating story for a lot of reasons. Um, of course, we hate to see accidents that involve multiple uh, cars and lots of injured and, and perhaps multiple fatalities. But uh, you mentioned that in a party bus, maybe everybody's been drinking. Yeah, and they absolutely were. And Safely. Yes, and as legal adults. Yes. They followed all the rules. They did it right. But, there, but there's a, you know, one of my favorite sayings is stuff that isn't supposed to happen happens every day. And so here they are completely intoxicated, safely, but, 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 Something happened with the car. We don't know what caused the accident. And now they're all wandering around the freeway at night, drunk, and cars coming up at high speeds, not realizing there's an accident. This is an extremely dangerous situation. I mean, there's Thank something you, to yes. be said for staying in control of your faculties. And I'm not making judgment on, uh, passing judgment on people who drink. I drink myself, but it's interesting how things happen sometimes, right? It, it was very interesting. Thankfully, um, you know, the police department shut down the expressway very quickly. Um, we were, uh, honestly, I felt like I was corralling people because, as I said, they're, they're intoxicated, they're scared, they're far from home. They were over an hour from home, so they weren't quite familiar with what was going on. And when I'm oh telling them, okay, we're going to be sending these people to this hospital, they don't know that hospital. Yeah. And trying to figure out, well, how are we going to get there? Who do we have to call? And they were very overwhelmed. And as were we, it was a long night, several hours on the expressway, sorting things out. Um, because I, I was actually the operations supervisor, so I fell into being medical command, which first experience with that. And if there's a such if there's such a thing as baptism by fire, I experienced it that night. Um, so a lesson to everybody listening, you know, the next time you're driving at night and the freeway shut down, instead of just worrying about your own damn schedule, you should understand that it's shut down for a very serious reason. There's probably multiple cars involved and, and everybody's in uh, trauma and trouble. And, uh, and we're just trying to clean up after a very bad situation. And this is the lady that does it. <laughs> we don't close things down and inconvenience everybody if we can possibly avoid it. Um, yeah, but yeah. when we have to, we just have to, and that's just what it is. I was quite taken by, uh, I know a little bit about what you do from our, from knowing you, um, taken by these visits that are less dramatic, but no less traumatic, where you visit 
residences and what places where people live and you're walking into their standard of living, whatever it is, and you see some remarkable things, remarkable in that in some cases you're actually obligated to report what you see, even though it had nothing to do with the call. Can you yes, talk about um, this? Yeah, when we, we do experience a lot of situations where we'll find quarters, um, whether that's a property of um, animals. Animal hoarders. Um, yes. Uh, um, people that, there's a lot of people that, you know, they have a pet and they absolutely love it and they find, let's say they have a cat and then another one wanders into the yard and they love their cat. So they want to take that one in too. And now they're breeding because they weren't Now, important distinction, they don't think of themselves as animal hoarders. They think they love cats. Yes, and they want to save them all. And and, and so is this a situation where uh, where the pet owner uh, is sometimes taking better care of the pets than they're taking care of themselves? Because you're actually there to call on somebody, a human being that's in bad shape. Yes, absolutely. There, There are people that will you know, choose not to get their own medications so that they can purchase food for wow. 18, 19 cats or, you know, there might be 10 puppies they couldn't find homes for, so they just continue to keep them. And yeah. they, it becomes very overwhelming very fast, and before they know it, they've gone into a spiral. You mentioned earlier that you sometimes have to report uh, what you see, or actually I mentioned that, you mentioned that you hate it when bad stuff's happening to kids. Um, I think there's a law now that if you see a kid, uh, a child is being abused, you're obligated to report it. And here you are walking in to treat somebody who's been choking or slipped or whatever, and then you witness the abuse, you have to, you have to drop a dime on these people, yeah? Yes, uh, we immediately contact CPS. And then we file official paperwork, which that immediately opens the case. And then the official paperwork is filed uh, within 72 hours. And at that point, the case is already open and has already been assigned yeah. to a worker. Yeah. And they begin investigating immediately. And I want to thank you for doing that because if, if you hadn't done it, nobody else is going into the home. It's just curious that you happen to be going in to treat another kind of emergency and then that's how you see it. But. We witness a lot of things because we are invited into people's homes uh, very freely. So we witness, there's, there's a very large level of trust involved in that and yeah. witness quite a bit. Yeah. Well, the, I imagine the last thing that they're thinking is what do, what do we need to clean up or put away before they, the paramedic gets here? They're worried about getting, uh, stopping the bleeding or whatever, right? Yes, or, you know, the chest pain or someone who's right, passed right. out, whatever the case is. Yeah, they're not concerned about hiding anything, which that's part of our, part of our agreement when we do this. Is we are not going to disclose what we learn about your life right. <laughs> by being in your home. I'm speaking with Emily Holstein, everybody. She's with uh, Alliance Mobile Health in Troy, Michigan. The website is alliancemobilehealth.org. Emily, let's wrap up with some fun stories because... Um, not that what you do is fun by, by, uh, by rule, but it turns out sometimes, sometimes some amusing things happen. You, you've had a few giggles on the job as well. Uh, yeah. Have you ever got a pair of shoes and found that they were too small and they were pinching your feet? Oh, sure. Blisters? Yeah. Sure. Did you ever consider calling 911 for that? <laughs> no. People because call 911 when their shoes I was, I was once called uh, emergent. 
he said that uh, he was having severe leg pain and our, through our dispatch process, they thought the possibility of you know, a blood clot or something very dangerous. And it turned out that he had blisters on his feet because his shoes were too small. Oh my goodness. What hospital he wanted to go to, he asked me which ER had Wi-Fi. <laughs> That's how he decided where he wanted to go. The answer is none. <laughs> That's so funny. No, no ERs have Wi-Fi? Not that it's available to the public, no. <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I actually didn't know that. Um, and, that's what, that he, and that's what he was interested in. That's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I've heard some crazy 911 stories like everybody else. I, I heard a couple of good ones I'll share with you. Maybe you, you probably heard them already. Uh, one was, a, one was a, uh, somebody called 911 because they couldn't remember their Facebook login. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite was a guy called 911 because his girlfriend wouldn't have sex with him. And, and the punchline is the 911 operator wouldn't either. Oh, my God. <laughs> but people don't understand 911 is a very serious thing, and we dial it uh, flippantly. And to be fair, there are some people that maybe aren't mentally all there. But 911 uh, is, is it illegal to call 911 if you don't have an emergency? How, is there a penalty for that? Um, it's... It takes quite a bit to get to that point of okay. penalty because um, they never want to discourage people. From but when you go out, somebody's paying for that run, the taxpayers maybe? Um, well, there are tax bases that maintain the services. Um, but like I said, no one ever wants to discourage anybody from calling 911. So if somebody, for example, you are driving down the street and you see somebody laying on the ground yeah. and think they might be having an emergency, but you're unable to stop for whatever reason, but you call yeah. 911. Yeah. We may jokingly refer to you as a cell phone hero, but at the same time, we never want to discourage that or you know, tell, say that you were wrong or penalize you because then you're not going to call next time. How does that work? I'm on a speaking tour. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm on a speaking tour and I call, uh, I see something happen, I'm driving by, I can't stop or tried to stop, but can't make the turn. I call 911. Will, 911, will, the, will my phone, will my iPhone figure out how to call the local 911? Um, typically speaking, yes. If you dial any, like, our, our iPhones are, my gosh, I think, I think this might be smarter than I am some days. Um, if you dial the emergency number for one country, it will typically dial emergency services for whatever country you're in. Okay. Um, there was actually a thing about that on Facebook recently where people were sharing tell Siri to call, I think it was 112, and see what she does. So that's the emergency services number for a different country. Oh. And so it was dialing emergency services on their phone. And that's an interesting thing, too. I wish I, I'm, I was more informed for the viewers. Maybe I'll try it after the call, and we'll put it in the show notes. But if I just said, uh, hey, Siri, call 911. Calling maybe. emergency services. Oh. Quick, hang up. <laughs> If, if it connected, they might call you back. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to do that. But at least we learned something for the uh, people watching. Uh, so there you go. If you actually say, hey, Siri, call 911. Yeah. Damn it. Calling emergency. <laughs> Your Siri looks a lot better than mine. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble on my own podcast. So if they call me back, I'll have to take the call. Um, 
But here's the thing now. Um, um, can every accident be prevented? Yes and no. In general, yes. Every, if every single circumstance were right on all ends and with every individual, yes. But the way you have to look at it in your own personal life is if the accident was predictable, then it was preventable. So if based on your circumstances, what was going on within your realm of reasonable knowledge, you were able to predict that that was going to happen, then you could have done something to stop it. However, other people's behavior is out of our control. So we always have to be prepared for that worst case scenario that we had no control over. And that brings us back to the very first thing we talked about it is stuff that happens on it's it, you don't expect it is do not be a victim of a bystander effect. And uh, if you see something, do something just like Emily says, everybody. Absolutely. Emily, you're a, you're a, you're a gift to our community. Uh, I love talking with you. I learn something every time I'm with you and I really, really appreciate your service. Will you thank everybody uh, that does good work at Alliance Mobile Health? And uh, everybody, if, you're, if you'd like to check on their website, it's alliancemobilehealth.org. I'll have um, links and show notes down below in the uh, comment section. Emily, you're a hero. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Michael.